clean slate, new ideas for justice and democracy. Today on my podcast, we're going to be talking about how prices are not just about supply and demand. They're about control over supply and demand. And the limited economy of a prisoner of war camp offers lessons about how the real economy works and some of the shortcomings of orthodox economic models. Now, my dad, Frank Lamont, uh, was a lawyer and a financial executive. And, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to understand his job and what he did. So we, we would talk about the economy and the law. And he was pretty good at explaining some complicated ideas. And one of the most basic and interesting was just when we were talking about somebody buying property. And I made the assumption, as we all do, that if you own property, you own the property. My dad explained why that was not the case. You don't own the property. You own the rights to the property. That didn't make sense to me. I said, surely if you own the property, that was that. How could you just own rights to property? I said, you know, who does own the property? He said, the Crown, which is to say in Canada, the federal government. And I wrestled with this idea for a long time, you know, Partly because I was a kid and really should have been doing something more normal and fun, like chucking a football around, which I did with my old man, instead of talking about property rights. But hey, you know, it was his job. But really, he was just telling me about the weird ways the world worked, in ways he thought were interesting and ultimately useful. And when he told me stuff like that, instead of just forgetting about it, I would obsess and think, how can that possibly be? Only having certain rights to property seemed like weak or tenuous. It was something that could be changed with a stroke of a pen, which it can, because there are all sorts of different kinds of rights to property. So eventually I realized there's an easy and obvious way of looking about it, which is when you buy a house or a farm or property, that transfer of ownership is all registered with the land titles office. You register your car too. So two of the most expensive property purchases that most people will ever make in their lives, that ownership is represented by having title by having a piece of paper that describes the property to which you have those rights. And if you happen to have mining rights, there's such thing as surface rights. So if you're a farmer, you just have the rights to the surface of your property, but somebody else could own the rights to the minerals below it. If you've got whatever it could be, it could be copper, it could be iron, it could be diamonds, it could be oil. You can own the rights to the top of your land, but not the mineral rights underneath. Thinking about property rights as being how we make a transaction, we can think about all transactions this way. So if I pay for the store to give up control of an apple, let me have it, and they offer me a receipt, there's a record of the transaction. That's how you pay for your groceries. It sounds weird to say you're going to buy the property rights to that apple, but that is what is happening. It's not the object that has a price. It's the price we pay to get someone else to release it to us. And while that might seem minor, I promise you it's not, because it means there's another dimension to supply and demand. And that's the amount of control the buyer has over their demand and the amount of control the seller has over their supply. Things don't have prices. People do. When we buy something, we're paying people to release it to us. And again, we don't usually consider this in retail transactions, where the price is usually just set. We don't haggle, we just pay the sticker price. The other transactions that go into setting that price 
are negotiated. Suppliers, labor, overhead. In those negotiations, there's always an element of risk that can result in a bad deal. Even if somebody's buying a whole bunch of fresh fruit, it can be frozen, it can be exposed to heat, something can go wrong, and the entire thing could go bad. So, in those negotiations, there's always an element of risk that one way or another can result in a bad deal. Usually, this is chalked up to what's called asymmetrical information, which is to say the seller knew something that the buyer didn't. A very polite term for what can range from genuine and innocent ignorance to malicious and criminal fraud. In a negotiation where each side is, of course, trying to establish the best deal, it's not just supply and demand. It's about each, su- it's about each side's capacity to control their supply and control their demand. And this reflects the difference in power between the parties on either side of the exchange. So it's not a smooth and simple relationship between supply and demand. Prices and the market will be distorted by market power. So long as buyers and sellers each exercise their control over their supply and control over their demand, prices will vary, sometimes wildly, as they do in the actual economy. That would seem to imply that the only cases where prices would move smoothly up and down would be an economy where buyers and sellers had no control over their demand or supply. And in fact, there are some somewhat famous real-life examples of just such an economy where buyers and sellers had no control over their supply and demand. R.A. Radford's 1945 account of the economy of a prisoner of war camp. After allowance has been made for abnormal circumstances, the social institutions, ideas, and habits of groups in the outside world are to be found reflected in a prisoner of war camp. Now, this is in the Second World War. It is unusual, but a vital society. Camp organization and politics are matters of real concern to the inmates as affecting their present and perhaps their future existences. No one pretends that camp matters are of any but local importance or of more than transient interest, but their importance there is great. They bulk large in a world of narrow horizons, and it is suggested that any distortion of values lies rather in the minimization than in the exaggeration of their importance. Human affairs are essentially practical matters and the measure of immediate effect on the lives of those directly concerned with them is to a large extent the criterion of their importance at that time and place. Prisoner can hold strong views on such subjects as whether or not all tinned meats shall be issued to individuals cold or be centrally cooked without losing sight of the significance of the Atlantic Charter. Now, this kind of economy, because it's it's a real working economy in the real world, but their special circumstances, has been called a toy economy. This situation has been called a toy economy. Everyone involved, by definition, had no control of either the supply of goods or services, or their ability to hold off in the hope of a better deal later. That's severely constricted because, basically, everyone is operating near a subsistence level. As an economy, everything was about exchange because there was no production. Everyone is either a seller or a consumer. This streamlined or simplified economy in the prisoner of war camp is actually very similar to the models that large-scale mainstream orthodox economics we use today, in which production is a black box. Radford wrote, The development and organization of the market. Very soon after capture, people realized it was both undesirable and unnecessary in view of the limited size and the quality of supplies to give away or accept gifts of cigarettes or food. Goodwill developed into trading as a more equitable means of maximizing individual satisfaction. 
We reached a transit camp in Italy about a fortnight after capture and received a Red Cross food parcel each a week later. At once, exchanges already established multiplied in volume. Starting with simple direct barter, such as a non-smoker giving a smoker friend his cigarette issue in exchange for a chocolate ration, more complex exchanges soon became an accepted custom. Stories circulated of a padre who started off around the camp with a tin of cheese and five cigarettes and returned to his bed with a complete parcel in addition to his original cheese and cigarettes. The market was not yet perfect. Within a week or two, as the volume of trade grew, rough scales of exchange values came into existence. Sikhs, who had at first exchanged tinned beef for practically any other foodstuff, began to insist on jam and margarine. It was realized that a tin of jam was worth four pounds of margarine, plus something else, that a cigarette issue was worth several chocolate issues, and that a tin of diced carrots was worth practically nothing. In this camp, we did not visit other bungalows very much, and prices varied from place to place, hence the germ of truth in the story of the itinerant priest. By the end of the month, when we reached our permanent camp, there was a lively trade in all commodities and their relative values were well known, but expressed not in terms of one another. One didn't quote bully in terms of sugar, but in terms of cigarettes. The cigarettes became the standard of value. Now, while a few people performed services as barbers or portraitists, all goods flowed into the camp from outside in the form of care packages from the Red Cross or others. And since it was a POW camp, prisoners lived in a relative state of continual deprivation. Cigarettes were used as currency, but also consumed. They were smoked by addicts, and different groups of prisoners had different cultural and religious appetites. The British valued tea, the French coffee, the Indian prisoners did not want beef. While some individuals were able to build up small stores, generally speaking, the suppliers had very little control over the supply, and the buyers had very little control over the demand. As a result, prices moved very smoothly as supply and demand changed to the equilibrium price, which is not what usually happens in the real world. As Radford wrote, the organization that arose happened spontaneously, without labor or production. Radford noted this seemed to undermine the labor theory of value which is the idea that value is created by the act of labor. But that's because the value had already been created elsewhere, outside of the camp. The demand, human hunger and appetite, was based on personal and cultural preferences. That was the basis of the value. Even the quality of cigarettes affected the value of money, with high-quality brands of cigarettes like Churchman's being kept for smoking while lower-quality smokes circulated as money. Cigarettes were also subject to the working of Gresham's Law. Certain brands were more popular than others as smokes, but for currency purposes, a cigarette was a cigarette. Consequently, buyers used the poorer qualities, and the shop rarely saw the more popular brands. Cigarettes such as Churchman's No. 1 were rarely used for trading. What's more, the cigarettes as currency were being actively introduced to the camp and then consumed. Radford writes, Our economy was repeatedly subject to deflation, and to periods of monetary stringency. While the Red Cross issue of 50 or 25 cigarettes per man per week came in regularly, while there were fair stocks held, the cigarette currency suited its purpose admirably. But when the issue was interrupted, stocks soon ran out, prices fell, trading declined in volume, and became increasingly a matter of barter. This deflationary tendency was periodically offset by the sudden injection of new currency. Private cigarette parcels arrived in a trickle throughout the year, but the big numbers came in quarterly, when the Red Cross received its allocation of transport. 
several hundred thousand cigarettes might arrive in the space of a fortnight. Prices soared and then began to fall slowly at first, but with increasing rapidity as stocks ran out until the next big delivery. Most of our economic troubles could be attributed to this fundamental instability. In other words, the cigarette-slash-money supply was what created economic stability and changes in prices. It should say something about the fact that economic theories about price equilibrium do work well in a prisoner of war camp, but not in an open society. And this has real implications when we think of control over supply and control over demand. This extra wrinkle is significant. Often, it's assumed that there are so many players in the market that competition will keep prices in check. That equilibrium is an assumption that there are forces in the market that will moderate excess, that the market is self-balancing. This is the argument against regulation or, or government intervention. For example, it might be assumed if the supply shrinks, the prices will increase, which will reduce demand because fewer people can afford it, which will then lead to a rebound in supply because prices will drop again. This seems intuitively correct, but there are many other possibilities that happen when you recognize that you're paying that person or organization for the rights to something, not for the thing itself. There's another possibility as well. Imagine that there's a demand for a specific luxury good. Imagine that there's a demand for a specific luxury good, say ivory from elephant tusks. As more and more elephants are hunted for their tusks as trophies, the supply dwindles and the price goes up. But instead of reducing demand, more poachers enter the market because of the high value of the tusks means they can make more with less work. The cost of the good is not related to its real-world rareness, but to the cost of paying people to obtain it, which may be high or low. This has real impacts when it comes to natural resources, and especially to rare or vanishing resources. The idea of price equilibrium, the idea of price equilibrium, of returning to balance, is the market will intervene through competition or creative destruction or technology in a way that will bring a distorted market back to balance. However, the reality of concentration of power means those differences in bargaining power and market share can be and are used to keep prices skewed and keep people at a permanent disadvantage. Now, in fact, I've added a part to the podcast as well as to the original article, if you want to go back and check it, which is a new formula for supply and demand. It's control equals S over D. And in this formula, control represents the overall control, where higher value indicates more control. S represents control over supply. D represents control over demand. This formula suggests the degree of control is determined by the ratio of control over supply to control over demand. If control over supply is greater than control over demand, the overall control will be higher and vice versa. And this translates into prices. Sometimes somebody who has demand has the power to walk away, which means they have control over the demand. And somebody who has control over supply means they can also walk away from a deal. If you have total control and you, it doesn't matter whether you make that deal or not, that affects whether there'll be a deal, but it also affects the price as well. When it comes to risk, reward, and who wins and who loses, there's a connection between the risk you take and who gets the reward in the economy. And that's something that reflects the real uncertainty we all live with. When it comes to risk-taking and payoff, we need to consider all the participants, not just the winners. The very nature of certain investments of some kinds of high-risk venture is it will have a low chance of success for most people who try it. That's what makes it high risk. 
Imagine a lottery with 100 tickets, where the prize will be evenly divided between 80 winners. It's a low-risk, low-reward game. If there are 50 winners and 100 tickets, there's a medium risk and a medium reward. And if there's a 5% chance of winning, a small number of people will get a big payoff. This is an important way of thinking about risk, how risk payoffs distribute rewards. High-risk investments will not work to spread the wealth for everyone who's investing in them. They will, by their very nature, concentrate the winnings, or the wealth or the income, in the hands of a few. Because high risk means most people will lose, and a very few will win big. Once that has happened, once a few people win big, the process can be self-reinforcing, because the big winner may be able to afford to continue making high-risk, high-reward bets so long as they can bear the losses. And if you're a big enough player, you can control the game. And I'll give the example, this is a thought experiment, Mr. Behemoth plays the lotto. There's an old saying about buying a lottery ticket. While it is certain that someone is going to win that jackpot, the odds are it will not be you. The value of thinking about the economy in terms of a lottery is important in at least one very important way, which is that our world and the economy are fundamentally uncertain. So much of what we do as human beings is about more safety, more certainty, and people do not want to take risks and lose. So this thought experiment has uncertainty about the future baked into it, including fundamental uncertainty. So imagine a lottery draw with one million tickets at a dollar each. So a billionaire, Mr. Behemoth, comes up with a scheme to buy 600,000 of the tickets. That puts his odds of winning at three to two when for a single ticket purchaser, the odds are one in a million. If Mr. Behemoth wins the full million, he would get his $600,000 back plus $400,000, a 66% return on his investment. It's high risk of loss with high reward, but the ticket buyer spending a dollar, it's low risk, it's low loss, but very little chance of winning. Of course, anyone with $600,000 could do the same as Mr. Behemoth and go around buying up tickets from draws like this. But not everyone has $600,000. And what's more, not everyone can bear the loss of $600,000, even if they have it. In fact, a billionaire could buy $900,000 worth of tickets and increase his chance of winning to 9 in 10 and still get an 11% return on investment if he won. That's better than almost any investment in the market. He could risk $999,999 and still come out ahead, though only with a dollar profit. What this shows is that for some players in the game, they can take stakes so large in a game that they can arbitrarily control their risk and their return. Most people will see Mr. Behemoth has rigged the game to move money to himself, but he's done it by shifting the risk away from himself to everyone else in the game. In this game, it is possible for him to virtually secure a guaranteed return, and in doing so, make it more unlikely that any of the other players will win. This is why actual lotteries require regulations to limit the number of tickets. This is an abstract example, it's a thought experiment, but it shows what happens when you get huge players in an economy because they have a completely different capacity to operate at a level that can tip the field in their favor. This is actually the position that dominant companies, monopolies, are in as well as the mega-wealthy in comparison to small-time investors. Very large companies and wealthy individuals have the ability to take such large stakes in markets that it alters the possible outcome. It tilts the playing field and the wins in their favor, while shifting risk 
to others in the system. But there is nothing unique about this model that restricts it to the private sector. It can equally apply to government, which can and often is the largest single player in a system. The New Yorker profiled Leon Cooperman, one of a number of hedge fund billionaires who felt ill-treated by the Obama administration since Obama had said that millionaires and billionaires, the 1%, should pay their fair share in taxes. One of many revealing passages in the article illustrated the difference in Cooperman's ability to take risks and absorb losses compared to the average investor. Quote, Cooperman mentioned that over the weekend an acquaintance had come by to get some friendly advice on managing his personal finances. He was a 72-year-old world-renowned cardiologist. His wife was one of the country's experts in women's medicine. Together, they had a net worth of around $10 million. It was shocking how tight he was going to be in retirement, Cooperman said. He needed $400,000 a year to live on. He had a home in Florida, a home in New Jersey, he had certain habits he wanted to continue to pursue. I'm just saying that it's not an impressive amount of capital for two people that were leading physicians for their entire life work. Cooperman went on, You know, I lost more today than they spent a lifetime accumulating. This shows that the idea of being able to absorb massive losses is not theoretical. Cooperman lives in a different world. He can lose $10 million a day without feeling it, sustaining a loss that would have wiped out the retirement savings of a couple that... At $10 million in retirement savings and $400,000 a year to live on would be the envy of most Americans to say nothing of everyone else on the planet. Now, Cooperman did not inherit his wealth. He grew up in the Bronx. His father was a plumber. He joined Goldman Sachs in the 1960s, where he became a partner, and started his own hedge fund in 1991. It's worth pointing out he was in the right place at the right time, being in finance in New York at a time when, from the 1970s, U.S. public policy started officially operating on the trickle-down premise that financial wealth creation was the key to prosperity for all. Since that time, as a very wise person has said, the rich get richer and the poor get the picture. These are some of the reasons why. It's why the growing concentration of wealth, of more and more companies owned by fewer and fewer conglomerates, is an issue that has been confronted in the past with what Americans call antitrust law and what Canadians call anti-combine law. The reason for doing that is because, at a certain point, Monopolies and oligopolies will continue to distort the market in ways that reduce the total productive capacity and potential of the economy. Because the idea of returning to economic equilibrium requires there to be an actual real-world mechanism that rebalances those exchanges between buyer and seller, not just a mathematical formula that assumes it. An individual owns a home and it's valued at $500,000. There's a kind of assumption that a, in a properly working market, you just have to offer that person that price the house is worth and they'll sell it. But they don't want to. They could be offered any amount of money, but that person just doesn't want to sell. That's the reality of markets, and it goes well beyond questions of preference or taste. People may refuse to buy or sell because they're negotiating and they're trying to get a better price through deception. They could be boycotting or supporting a brand for personal, religious, or political reasons. That's the case on just about everything, which is supposed to be the point of a private market, which is that people are free to choose who they trade with, what the price they'll accept, and whether they'll accept the price at all. The economy is not just everyone paying the retail price for everything, as if the families and corporations make every purchase as if they're buying something at the self-checkout at the grocery store. And the reason all of this matters is, once again, it means the diagnosis of what is happening in the economy may be wrong. If we're talking about control over supply and control over demand, it means that if something is starting to cost too much, like housing, it may not be because there isn't enough housing supply. If we're talking about control over supply and control over demand, 
and it means something starting to cost too much like housing, it may not be because there isn't enough housing supply. If we're talking about control over supply and control over demand, it means that if something is starting to cost too much like housing, it's not as simple as having a housing shortage. The problem may be that housing is being taken off the market by speculation, or that too much of the market is held by commercial landlords who are able to control the supply. And with housing in particular, supply and demand is not the only market driving prices. There's another one, the mortgage and debt market. As far as banks seem to be concerned, they're not the penny pinchers they used to be when it comes to lending. It's because they've realized the more money they can lend you, the more money they can make, in the short term anyway. It's very clear that large companies do abuse their market power. They get charged and convicted of price fixing and collusion. And if we recognize the role of bargaining power in supply and demand, it means we can see the other factors that are playing to the price so we can actually address the issue in a way that is based in reality. That's it. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed it. And look, this is a, it's a simple idea, but I think it's a very important one. Thank you so much. Do consider signing up uh, for a paid subscription. The response has been awesome, yeah, so I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, and if you've got any suggestions or questions, email me, dougald at substack.com. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.